0: SCP-001 Mamjul and Karar, Part 2 Regardless of the canon, the Devite civilization and the Deva themselves are rarely presented in a flattering light. At worst, they represent one of the most dangerous threats to human existence, capable of rewriting history to ensure their supremacy. At best, notably in SCP-6140, they were a people merely made to seem savage by an outsider, although even then they still had the highest rates of slavery in the world before the slave revolt. In this canon, we so far don't know a great deal about the Davites, and neither does the Foundation. All they know for sure is they were a major part of the downfall of the Meccanite Empire, and since the Foundation has to deal with the Mechanite resurgence in the form of Robert Bumaro and the Church of the Broken God, they're willing to look to the Davites for some answers. Let's continue. We pick up as the Foundation is starting to send divers down to fully explore the sunken city of Mamjul. Over the course of a few weeks, the trained coyote divers of MTF Gamma 6 performed 13 dives typically led by Desai, and monitored by members of the research committee, as well as a member of MTF Alpha-1. We're given a transcript of the first dive, as the team exits the stump out into the city proper. One of the team comments on how this place gives them the creeps, but another says that these are just some old ruins, as anything else would be crushed at this depth, and even sperm whales don't go this deep. For members of an organization focused on the anomalous world, that seems like a fairly short-sighted view. Command tells them to just scout out the buildings, the architecture near the citadel, and the interiors for anything of interest. They can split up to cover more ground, but they shouldn't stray too far from one another. They exit out onto the street, and are all impressed at the size and architecture of the buildings surrounding them some reaching up to seven stories high. The avenue in front of them is littered with debris, including large amounts of bones. The team proceeds to split up, exploring the nearby portions of the city, and Desai proceeds to tell the others to turn off their lights for a second as he enters one of the buildings. They do so, and after several seconds, a soft greenish glow begins to form from the cracks and crevices of the buildings caused by some kind of moss. The surrounding area is illuminated in a pale, sickly green light. Khan too remarks that it's some kind of bioluminescent algae, but algae doesn't appear this deep, especially ones that need sunlight to glow. They take some samples, as Desai mentions how the buildings are familiar looking, comparing it to Angkor Wat in Cambodia a gigantic buddhist temple complex covered and layered in intricate carvings of myths and legends. He says that this place is drenched in religion, and you can feel it in every crevice. The team continues exploring, and all of the buildings are reminiscent of Cambodia and general southeast asian architecture, many of them resembling temples in structure and form. Unfortunately, All of the buildings they check out turn out to be empty, despite the fact that these should be the largest and most impressive buildings due to their proximity to the temple. Desai says that there's nothing here but dust and blood, seemingly referencing a tale focused on the Scarlet King. Later, on their sixth dive, the team travels as a group in a diamond formation, focusing on the layout of the city. They encounter several large pits in the place of buildings, carved with steps in the sides leading down, containing water significantly darker than their surroundings. Khan too says that it looks like a step well, a kind of ancient Indian reservoir consisting of a big pit in the ground that would collect rainwater. They take a sample of the dark water and continue on, into the southern third of the city floating over large pathways layered with bones. The team comments on the skeletons, both the number of them and their features, some of which are not human. Con 4 floats down and picks up a skull, showing it to be far denser than its appearance would suggest, with the large cranium fanning out into two horn-like protrusions and a wide crest behind them. There are also three eye sockets spread horizontally. Khan too says that a lot of these look more like cattle than people, but even then, no cattle they've ever seen before. Desai remarks that Amani Ram had huge streets because of all their mechs and technology, while Mamjul had huge streets probably because of the larger size of their people. They also comment on the undamaged nature of most of the skeletons, with no signs of breaking or trauma. Clearly, most of them didn't die in battle, but that's for the researchers to figure out. On the 13th dive, the team focuses on more completely exploring the massive stump, the citadel. Desai mentions that he's still hearing a noise and asks if someone's radio is on static. Command tells them to keep moving for now, but keep an eye on each other. The team however agrees with one another that there's likely nothing for them to find here, as they've been scouring the place for hours now. They were definitely right about it being a citadel though, a cross between a fortress, a palace, and a temple. There's an extensive system of rooms, but since there's no furniture, there's no way for them to tell what they're intended for. They've taken samples of the plant life, but there's not much else they can do. Desai wants to check out the base floor though, and then they can leave. The team descends down the central passage to the ground floor, turning on their flood lamps to illuminate the space. It's dominated by two massive statues resting on a dais with an altar in the center. They resemble the two largest figures on the carvings outside, one male in a headdress and armor, and an androgynous spirit inlaid with red jewels. The two appear to be dancing, and in front of them, a throne sits almost two meters off the ground carved from what appears to be a single root of the tree. Several other statues with cupped hands decorate the space. Desai points out the floor as well, showing it to contain a similarly intricate series of wood symbols and lettering spreading out in concentric circles from the altar. He approaches the altar, into which is embedded a knife of some kind. He pulls it from the wood and it appears to be a ritual dagger, so they bag it. They then proceed to take some pictures of the area, but most of the carvings have been rubbed away by the water, and there's no other relics lying around, so they head back to the surface. All of the samples the divers recovered were analyzed on site in the following weeks by the various sub-teams and personnel of the research committee, under the direction of Dr. Galanis. However, The limited array of samples and general lack of historical material caused difficulty and a lack of actionable results. Galanis wrote a memo the following month on their personal thoughts on the research progress. It reads, This hasn't quite worked out the way I'd hoped. I don't feel cheated or bitter. Nobody could have predicted stuff like this, that the city would be Nigh empty, or that we'd be working from scraps. But it's still frustrating regardless. This was supposed to be my big break. I've enjoyed spending my time on the Lillehammer's crew, but I think everyone knew why I was there instead of climbing the ladder back at a real site. Relegated to the dustbin of history for something I didn't even do. I mean, I'm not stupid. I get it. They can't know for certain I had nothing to do with what happened in a money rom. But it's still unfair. And then, of all the ships in the world, I happen to be on the one that stumbles across Mom Jewel. It's gotta be fate, I tell myself, and promise that I'll do the best I can to show them all that I'm not Bumaro or Dr. Nussbaum. And now I have to go, tail between my legs, and tell the council that I don't have anything. Not even anything good, but nothing. Maybe they were right, to keep me away from the real projects. I know it's not true, but god damn if it doesn't feel like it right now. It just doesn't make sense, though. Nothing about this makes sense. A money rom was a technological marvel. They were doing cold fusion in 1500 BCE. The only thing remotely anomalous about the David Covenant so far is that the fact that they had strange plants. How was this war at all evenly matched? What did the Deva have that made the ancient Mechanites so terrified of them? What is Karar? What the hell happened here? We might even be able to answer that, if we had anything left of records, writings, materials, artifacts, relics, anything. But there's nothing. It's as if the Deva have been wiped from history. It's infuriating. The research teams are demoralized. The divers are sick of going down to root around in old ruins and find nothing. The fact that their every move is constantly watched by armed men doesn't exactly help. I've had people coming to me and AJ for weeks with complaints of the MTF guys making it impossible for them to get any work done. But there's not much I can do without them thinking I've gone native. It's funny how many of my problems lead back to Bumaro despite never even meeting him. I don't know what to do. There's just so many questions that haven't been answered. All we know right now is a facsimile, a half-dreamt image of the David culture. A rich history of architecture, art, and dance that you can still see influences of in Indian and Cambodian culture. An almost religious reverence for nature, androgyny, and dreams but also indications of cannibalism, ritual sacrifice, brutal slavery. And these are all just from what we have observed in the city. No one really knows anything about the Deva. If we just had some kind of guide. Try as I might not to, I keep returning to Bumaro and Nussbaum, what they would have done. Though they did it for an abominable purpose, they were the only ones in the situation I'm in now. They were blockaded in their research until they found the preserver to help them understand. Conventional methods stopped working, so they looked for a guide and found one. Except there aren't any guides left here. Or maybe... I just need to broaden my horizons. Afterwards, a meeting took place between Galanis and O51 using a lay space communicator. The communicator projects the two into an alternate location to have the conversation face to face, which is in this case an ancient desert city. Galanis quickly recognizes it as a money and 051 says that the lay space is a strange thing, but to his understanding, the communicator sends an encrypted signal through the earth's latent ley lines using magic, which tends to respond to the moods and minds of the users. Since Amani Ram has been weighing on his mind quite heavily as of late, it chose this location, to which Galanis says that it doesn't help that Bumaro built this thing correcting themselves to say Aram. 0 5 says that they can call him Bumaro, as he's no longer the man that they hired, as far as he's concerned, and maybe not a man at all. They last heard from him nearly ten years ago now, but things went poorly, although he's not at liberty to divulge too many details. Glanis tells him it's worrying to imagine someone that unhinged running around with that kind of power, and that he's one of their biggest threats, but O5-1 disagrees. The council all agrees that Bumaro is an existential danger to the foundation, but he does not believe that Bumaro is insane or the biggest threat they face, only the most present one. Galanis asks him if he thinks he's doing all this for power, to which O5-1 sighs and asks how old Galanis thinks that he is. Galanis laughs and says that they don't really know, as it's kind of an open secret that the O5 members are long-lived, being around for pretty much as long as anyone can remember. Galanis knows that that wasn't really what he was asking, though and says that he looks like a very good 80 or a really bad 60. O51 stops walking and looks upward, saying that he was born in a Roma camp in Wales in 1880. He was at Verdun, Gallipoli, and the Somme. He lived through the war to end all wars and another after that, not to mention the countless other conflicts scattered across Europe. He witnessed their hidden underbelly, the occult wars with their carnage left unseen and unknown by the world at large. Dying angels in no man's land, accursed weaponry, and soldiers roused from the dead. He saw Robert Bumaro in the last message he ever left for the Foundation, and his was not a face of Machiavellian scheming. His was a face that O5-1 is unfortunately familiar with seeing and wearing, a man terrified, able to see the world sliding into another occult war, powerless to stop it. The two continue walking, and O5-1 apologizes, saying that he prefers to keep his thoughts on the matter to himself, but he does think that Bumaro discovered something about the abominate whatever it is, and it shook him to his core. He's seen too many men die not to say that, as a young man, if he had known what he knows now, he would have done anything to protect the ones he loves. He simply disagrees with Bumaro about the means, as the Foundation remains the best and only vanguard against such a threat. He is sure the threat is coming, however. Galanis swears and apologizes, saying that that's a lot to take in. 0 051 replies that this is why they've taken such a risk on this project and on Galanis, as whatever the secrets of the Deva are, they need them now more than ever. Galanis understands, but the pressure is worrying, as they're not the kind of person built for leadership and can't help but wonder if the foundation is better off choosing someone else. 0 5 says that perhaps that might be true, but it doesn't really matter, as Galanis is the one they chose, for better or for worse. For what it's worth, he thinks that they're doing fine, although he can tell that there's some bad news. Galanis says that the project is stalled, for lack of a better word, and apologizes. 0 5 replies that Galanis doesn't have to apologize as he likes them, and does not consider Galanis's worth contingent on the success or failure of this mission. Galanis is surprised by this, and thanks him, as 0 051 continues to say that they are both historians, and Galanis actually reminds him quite a lot of himself in younger years, before he saw all the horrid depravity the world has to offer. He tells Galanis not to lose their bright eyes of optimism as they will need idealists in the foundation in the times to come. When asking why the project is at a halt, Galanis says that they just don't have anything to work from, as there's almost no historical record, no analogous societies, no writings or sources. The most they've been able to do is work on analyzing the architecture and carvings throughout the city, but even that's limited because it's in far worse condition than a money rom. 0 51 asks if they have any idea what or where Karar is so far, because if they were sister cities, perhaps Karar is better preserved and contains something that they can actually use. Unfortunately, they haven't found anything, and Galanis is honestly not even sure that it is a city at this point. The Daevic Covenant were paradoxical, and the only thing they can do is analyze their murals, so that's what they've spent most of their time on. What they have is confusing, though, as the Davites had an intense focus on the metaphysical and spiritual. Unsurprisingly, it seems like they were theocratic, given that the central citadel is both the temple and the palace, worshipping some entity or greater power called the Scarlet. O51 says that he's never heard of such a thing, and Galanis says that they first thought it would be a blood god, which a lot of the research committee still thinks that it is, as they had a place for ritual human sacrifice with altars and obsidian knives and all kinds of carvings of people being split open to appease the Deva spirits. The depictions, however, are different than they've seen in other Asian and Mesoamerican societies. It's a joyful affair, and the sacrifices seem almost as pleased as the deva are to welcome them. 0 5 says that it's hardly reasonable to think that all societies would view death as final, especially given the exposure to necromancy that the Aegean Tablet suggest. Galanis isn't convinced, though, saying that the depictions of the scarlet are softer more magnanimously indifferent than vengeful and demanding. Their art is complex, gentle, and almost sensual. Their cities are magnificently constructed, but at the same time, they know from the Mechanites that they had a vast slave system enforced by magic, and that their anomalies were at least in part fueled by sacrifices. O51 asks if there's any indications as to what that magic was, but beyond it being something related to horticulture, there isn't. There's similarly a lack of indications about their history as a society, including what happened to land them two miles underwater. The team doesn't know what to do, and Galanis feels like they've failed. O51 says that they've done admirably, given the circumstances but Galanis says that they've exhausted all of their conventional options. O51 tells them to turn to the unconventional then, to which Galanis says that there is one idea, but it's kind of out there. O51 replies that he spent his thirties and forties advising the various paranormal organizations in Europe on how to arm themselves using their country's horrible, forgotten monsters and mythologies. So, out there doesn't begin to phase him. Galanis says that they're going to need someone transferred to the research project, someone who was involved in the original A Money Rom initiative. That individual is none other than SCP 1867, Lord Theodore Thomas Blackwood. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. And Blackwood says that he's always had such pleasant interactions with the para-history fellows, though he's admittedly not quite sure what that moniker means, as history is history. He mentions that there was a fair-haired woman from that department who used to interview him quite often, a Dr. Nussbaum, although Galanis just awkwardly says that she's no longer employed by the foundation. She's kind of why Galanis wanted to speak with him today though, as they've been going over some of the old files from her project and came across something that was written in one of Blackwood's adventure diaries that they were hoping he could shed a little light on. Blackwood replies that it's been many years since he wrote those, and he's practically a different man now, but he'll try to remember. Galanis asks about a section of diary 57 in which he mentions the expedition of an acquaintance of his into the Indian Ocean in search of undersea ruins. Upon the mention of the alias Captain Nemo, Blackwood remembers, although he says that calling Nemo an acquaintance of his is much like calling the Sicilian sea beast an acquaintance of the Tyrrhenian sailors, if you catch his meaning. Galanis doesn't, but senses that the two weren't fond of each other, Blackwood says that he had no quarrel with the man, and in fact he admired his can-do attitude and breadth of inventions to support his adventuring, having had the pleasure of witnessing his submarine, the nautilus, surface once. It was a technological marvel, the likes of which the world may never see again, longer than many ships, and seemed natural, appearing as though carved from a single titanic block of jungle wood but filled with engines, armor, and livery. Galanis remarks that that's oddly familiar, and asks if he ever went inside. Unfortunately he didn't, as Captain Nemo wouldn't allow it due to having a deep-seated resentment in his heart for all Englishmen. Blackwood has never been particularly attached to his homeland, finding more solace in darkest Peru than he does in Durham. But Nemo was of Indian descent, and held a chip on his shoulder over the crown's dominion over his land. He felt that every well-born individual who had benefited from the plundering of his homeland deserved nothing but scorn at the best. Blackwood was unable to go on Nemo's expedition, but he knew some of the individuals that did go along, and had heard that they had found something far south of India on the seabed. The specifics were murky at best, but through the grapevine, it was whispered to him that some of the many spiritually inclined men under Nemo's command had returned from the expedition shaken and disturbed. To a normal man, this might have meant nothing, but as Blackwood studied with the Castor monastery on the slopes of Makalu, he knew that Nemo had them doing the art of projection. With intense practice, meditation, and no small amount of psychotropic assistance, it's possible to enter into a fugue state of sorts, during which the soul may depart the body and enter into the astral plane. The castor monks have spent centuries studying the existence of the astral plane and the vast mysteries it contains, and have ascertained that it is a manner of reality blanketing our own, invisible to the naked eye but interweaving with all parts of daily life, and is inhabited by spirits. The nature of the astral plane is such that it is at once a reflection and a cause of our own material plane. Significant people, events, and even places can leave impacts and connections that persist long after the destruction of the physical form, such as the presence of poltergeists and djinns. Blackwood's theory is that since Nemo possessed no gift for the metaphysical arts, he attempted to use his crew to astral project and discover the secrets of the Atlanteans. His crew, however, being largely unrefined brutes, lacked the necessary finesse. Blackwood would have stepped in then, but only a month after he heard about this, he heard that a common vampire had been sighted east of the Ural Mountains for the first time in more than three centuries, and he couldn't miss out on the opportunity. Galanis bets that he would like to see the sunken city, and Blackwood responds that he certainly would to see if the legends of monumental towers powered by light and glass and great sea beasts bound into service are true. Galanis tells him that the foundation has an interest in Atlantis as well, although its proper name is Mamjul. They've located the ruins, but there isn't much to see, leading them to go over the records of the initial discovery of Amani Ram and notice the references to some kind of psychic detachment. If Blackwood is prepared to share his knowledge of astral projection, they could probably convince their superiors to allow him to be on the first team. Blackwood contemplates this for several seconds before saying that he shall assist them in their endeavor, and together they shall unlock the mysteries of Atlantis. Blackwood was subsequently transported to the research ships along with a number of supplies, equipment. And a detachment of personnel from the Psychotronics Division at Site 19. Over the following month, almost every member of the Mamjul Karar Initiative was subjected to a gauntlet of tests to determine their psychic potential. Those with the highest scores and sufficiently high cognitohazard resistance values were inducted into a provisional applied task force, codenamed Dream Team. By mid-november, nine members of the initiative had been inducted into the team, including Lieutenant Greaves, Operator Desai, and Dr. Galanis. Foundation research into extrasensory perception had exploded since 1944 with the founding of the psychotronics division, and provided several advances, such as low telepathy, scrying, and limited divination, though true astral projection remained out of reach. With the assistance of Blackwood's expertise on the matter, psychotronics division personnel were able to train members of dream team into being able to induce a fugue state that Blackwood affirmed would result in successful astral projection if performed under the influence of nestic drugs. Additionally. O51 requisitioned the LSAP Cadmus Aram Deep Brain Oniric Parietal Stimulation and Recording Array, a one of a kind prototype constructed by Dr. Hadley Cadmus and Dr. Robert Aram. The device consists of two separate portions a medical implant of several electrodes inserted into brain tissue, leading out to a wire through the nape of the neck and a computerized system to which the wire would be connected. The implant would stimulate brain tissue to produce a heightened state of awareness during dreams, and the computer would record sensations and visuals to produce as text. The text would require additional human processing, but the final product was a largely accurate transcription of what the subject says and does, including while dreaming. The device was tested and confirmed safe before being implanted into Greaves to serve as an indisputable, impartial record of what was discovered for council records, in compliance with the o5 edict. Following the operation and his two-week recovery, Greaves returned in preparation for the first attempt at astrally projecting into mom Jewel, performed on december 20th, 2002. For the first projection test, Blackwood and four members of dream team were selected, Galanis, Greaves, Desai, and operator Sarah Morello. All of the members were given medical and neurological workups before entering into a secure padded containment chamber aboard the phantom. They were seated in restrained reclining medical chairs with various instruments attached to the sides leading to displays of neurological activity, heart rate, and similar readouts. IVs of class W nestics were inserted into the arms of all personnel, aside from Blackwood, who instead had a small amount mixed into the bowl of seawater in which he was placed. The members were also given sedatives and muscle relaxants in order to begin the test. Blackwood begins by explaining the process they're going to be going through. And tells them to remember that excess stress will wake them from the state, which may prove to be a boon or a burden depending on what they encounter. They should begin by closing their eyes and relaxing, allowing their muscles to slacken, opening their mouths and allowing their lungs to loosen and breathe simply and naturally. They should consider their place in the universe, members of their various homelands and their governments, members of their families, members of the foundation. They should then consider their physical place, floating aboard a great ship, leagues off the southern tip of India. At the same time, they are floating leagues above the ruins of an ancient civilization. Their position is relative, so they may change it as they please and the world will change accordingly. The plane of our existence they see is simply one more axis of position, and it's alterable. There's no reason they should not be able to change it as easily as one can walk from one end of the ship to the other. They should imagine themselves doing so, leaving that which is physical behind, and entering something purer. They should allow themselves to walk from the bow, to the bridge, along the gunwales of the vessel. It's a familiar path, with the sea on their left, and the metal of the ship on their right. Their bodies relax as they continue down the path, until finally arriving at the stern, and as far as they can see, there is only the ocean. Blackwood then tells them to open their eyes, and since we're only receiving Greaves’s perspective, we see him open his eyes, revealing himself to be standing in an alien landscape. There is no clear sky or ground, but instead auroras of strobing lights fill the space above, with only darkness beyond them and occasional flashes of lightning. Greaves is standing on a patch of viridian grass only a meter wide, and beyond the patch, dotted reddish-pink stars seem to stretch on forever downward into the abyss of the plain. Some kind of fog or mist also blankets the ground, rising up to his knees. He calls out, and turns to see Galanis standing in a lab coat in the distance. Greaves takes an unsteady step forward, and he's instantly a meter away from Galanis, who reflexively steps back. Greaves says that hopefully they're on the astral plane now, but Galanis tells him to stop and listen. They hear a distant chanting for several seconds, accompanied by the pounding of war drums and a howling sound. The two turn and in the distance lies some sort of stone structure, obscured by a vast collection of tall trees. Greaves remarks that the sound is remarkably similar to the whispering noise in momjool that he and Desai kept hearing. Greaves wants to go check it out, but Galanis tells him to wait for a couple of minutes to see if the others show up. Unfortunately, after several minutes, no one else shows up. Grieve says that with any luck, the others are already in the structure, so the two begin to make their way over there. Periodically, lightning flashes across the horizon, bathing everything in a sickly green glow. As they continue on, the chants and drumbeats grow louder, more intense, and a chorus can be heard vocalizing along, in a language neither understand, but both feel. They continue to walk for what feels like hours, but the structure only grows slightly closer. They pause, as out of the fog and mist, Desai, Morello, and an unknown figure steps out. The figure is an older gentleman dressed in a waistcoat, trousers, and boots with spats. A derby cap sits atop his brown-haired head, laden with a boyish grin despite his age. This would be Lord Blackwood, in his former human form rather than his current sea slug form. Blackwood welcomes them to the astral plane, and warns them not to think themselves into the abyss, as that would be quite an ugly fate. The team discusses continuing to head towards the stone structure, which appears to be a fortress or castle, although the trees look thick surrounding it. They continue on, eventually approaching the structure as they pass through a line of impossibly tall, broad-leafed jungle trees. Vines hang from the canopy high above, and shrubbery layers the ground. The growth is thick, but the trees and undergrowth seem to shift, making way for the group's march forward. Morello comments that trees this tall don't exist on earth as these are at least 500 feet tall. The chanting and drumming and singing continues to grow in pitch and intensity as they approach. Blackwood remarks that he's never heard anything quite like this, as it sounds primal. The group then suddenly breaks through the tree line, finding themselves face to face with a massive wall, constructed of massive blocks of stone carved into shape. On the battlements, unclear figures peer over, and the surface of the stone is alive with pulsating stars moving in tune with the song. A huge archway dominates, through which a great door is very slowly opening. The door eventually opens, and the group walks through, stepping on the dirt and soil that covers this portion of the plain. They find themselves in a massive, intact city, with temple-like buildings rising for stories in all directions. In the far distance, at the center of the city, and at the end of the long avenue on which they currently stand, the topmost portion of a huge tree can be seen, its branches spreading atop the sky. The chanting and drumbeats are louder than ever. And in every direction, there is bacchanalian celebration as huge figures fill the city shoulder to shoulder, engaged in revelry. The entities all vary in shape and appearance, but they're tall, in excess of three meters, with pale mint skin and long curling horns. They drink dance in intricate patterns and sing their chanting harmony in tune with the huge drums. However, they leave the main broadway entirely empty for the group to walk through, while looking at them. Desai remarks that the buildings look like the ones in Mamjul, but alive, and Galanis says that the deva never died out, just the covenant did. The city resembles the architecture of Mamjul, but raised to an inhuman standard, with buildings and temples that could only be three or four stories shooting into the distance, causing the team to crane their necks to view. The branches of the great tree are carved with living spaces and dotted with yet more deva engaged in revelry. The carvings adorning every surface and building dance in time with the great song, coming from everywhere around them. The crowd seems to move and thrum with a life of its own, and the communal dance pulses every entity in sight forward towards the citadel tree in the center of the city. Drawn along, the team is pulled forward, down the broadway, and as they move through the great streets of the city, the grander it becomes. The plain gray stone of Mamjul has been painted over with bright, resplendent shades of reds, purples, and gold trimming, and the tall horned Deva's green skin makes a sharp contrast against the warm buildings they occupy. The raucous wildness only increases in intensity, with many of the entities openly engaged in intoxicated, violent combat. In the distance, over the city's rooftops, gigantic beasts of burden almost as tall as the trees slowly move across the skyline on hundreds of legs. The movements and lapping of the crowd gently push the group forward, but not aggressively. Many of the deva are joyous at the sight of them, clasping their hands and raising them before letting them go. Eventually, they arrive at the entrance to the tunnel leading into the citadel, where the drumming and loudest singing can be heard coming from inside. They proceed in, passing by lines of deva beating their fists against the stone wood walls in song. The group exits out into the throne room, containing two thrones both carved from the same titanic vein of wood. On the left, sits a human corpse, with features made indiscernible by its age, dressed in elaborate finery and a wreath. The throne on the right is occupied by a female deva in similarly elaborate dress, leading the song encompassing the entire city. The tree is open overhead, with the lightning and auroras visible through the canopy of leaves, and other robed deva fill the various landings of the citadel blackwood remarks that this is not what he expected when they described mamjul and desai responds that this isn't mamjul as they enter the deva sitting on the throne breaks off from the omnipresent song and slowly descends the staircase the others continue unabated as she enters into a deep bow, she speaks in a language not heard by human ears in three millennia, but they understand her perfectly. She welcomes them to Karar, eternal city of the Deva, seat of the slumbering Maharaja, the Scarlet City. Her name is Rajmata Vaslirasaraj Sharat empress consort of the Forlorn Covenant, and she welcomes them back. One thing's for certain, the team is definitely going to learn far more about the devites from Karar than they did from Mamjul. Being able to speak with an actual deva is a pretty uncommon thing, and we're going to learn a lot about the history of the deva and the two cities. Everything seems fairly pleasant on the surface here, with a lot of song and dance, but these were not a peace-loving people, and they worship a god of blood and death. We'll just have to see if Galanis and the team can find out some info about the Davites that does some good, without having a repeat of the Amani-Ram debacle, or worse.